So, Connor, I'm really excited to have you on the show for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that you're both a huge Madeline Pryor fan and you're fairly conversant with the X-Men series, which means I can finally actually ask someone a question that I've been sitting on for ages, which is what the hell was going on with Madeline's ghost? Apart from the light interdimensional incest? Well, yeah. So she starts out pretty straightforward. She's the ghost of our Madeline Pryor, the one from Earth 616. So that Madeline Pryor being the clone of Jean Grey, who was briefly married to Cyclops and is the biological mother of Cable. Right. Anyway, Nate Gray was lonely when he landed in this reality from the Age of Apocalypse and subconsciously reached out for his mom. That's the Jean Grey of Earth 295. And he sort of stumbled across the pieces of Madeline's psyche on the astral plane where they had lingered after the Inferno, the classic Inferno, the one in the 80s, and reassembled her. She was amnesiac for a while, but eventually she gets her memories back. And she just she was cool with just hanging out with Nate. Now she learns dark sorcery at the side of Celine. She joins the Hellfire Club. She reconnects with Nathan, her son, Cable. I mean, our Nathan. And then um, she gets killed. Wait, wait, gets killed. I thought she was already a ghost. Re-killed and secretly replaced by the Red Queen, the Jean Grey of Earth 9575, who wanted to use Nate, Nate Grey of Earth 295, not Cable, to expand her evil empire on Earth 998. Good Lord. Where she had also replaced that reality's Madeline Pryor. What? Don't worry about it. <laughs> I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Connor Goldsmith, filling in for Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 367 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And Connor, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I was so flattered when you asked me to come on. So as many of our listeners no doubt know, you are the host of Cerebro, which is also an X-Men podcast, but one that takes a very, very different approach to the material. For folks unfamiliar, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. So Cerebro is a character by character survey of all 59 years of the X-Men franchise. Each episode features a guest who is passionate about the character we're talking about. And we do a deep dive on, well, first we talk about why that person loves the X-Men. Then we talk about why they love or are interested in the character we're talking about. And uh, then I do a segment where I catch the listeners up on everything that character has ever done that they have to worry about and all the things that they don't have to worry about. And then we just talk about great storylines, thematics, what the character represents in the broader metaphorical world of the X-Men and uh, do a lot of analysis. It's, it's a lot of fun. I started it as sort of a lark at the beginning of the pandemic and uh, I was kind of shocked by how it took off, but I'm very grateful and I love doing it. So I'm going to do it as long as people will listen to it. And I will say, speaking of, of long, for those of you who have said that you wished it were a, there were a longer podcast about the X-Men, this is the <laughs> one to go to because Cerebro episodes tend to run around three hours. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to keep them to three max these days. Uh, and, and it's in segments. So like you can stop at a moment. There's like an X-Men, X-Men, and then you can like break for the day if you want to. But uh yeah, they started about 90 minutes and then they just kept kind of getting bigger and bigger. The longest episodes, and I, I will never do this again, I swear to God, are um, the episodes on Candy Southern and Celine, which are both four and a half hours. Whoa, those are not the two names I would have expected for that. 
Well, so it's funny, actually. One of the things about my Celine episode was that I know that you and Miles are not like huge Celine fans historically. And I, I am a big Celine fan. So I was like, I'm going to make the case for this character because in, you know, in the world of people listening to the X-Men podcast, they should hear one homosexual argue for Celine. Um, she's, she's, such, she's the most, she's the most ridiculous. And she's almost, she's had like one good story ever. But so the episode is mostly just me and my guest. Alex Abad Santos like vibing about what we wish her stories were like and what we would love to do with her if we could just write a Celine solo that would never be approved. Um, What's her good story? I really like the stuff with Rachel in the 80s. Okay, and, fair uh, enough, yeah. And I think that the Kulan Gath arc, while it is a mess, is a lot of fun. Um, and then I actually think that Necrotia, while the main storyline is in X-Force is not that great, I think that the tie-ins all around it are actually very good. So, uh, you know, and, and I, I actually, I really loved how Teeny Howard wrote her in X-Corp, uh, recently. So I'm hopeful that Kieran Gillen is going to do really fun stuff with her soon. The Candy Southern episode, that was like me and Sarah Century deciding, like, we are going to do this. Like, we are going to... Because I, I kept bringing her up, apropos of nothing, in other episodes. People were like, who even is this character? She dies in 1988, 89. So most people listening to the podcast were not alive yet. So they're all just kind of like, mm. So we were like, you know what? We're going to go through all 50-odd appearances that this character has. We're going to talk about every single one of them. And we're going to make you understand why this is, like, the most egregious bridging in the Marvel universe potentially and why we should fix it and how we could fix it. And also it's, it's just, you know, it's a, it's more of a comedic podcast than it is a serious podcast, but I try to bring some analysis in, in terms of, and this is where the guests come in really handy. Cause I can only speak, you know, I'm like a gay Jew from New York. I have like a very specific point of view on the mutant metaphor on oppression and politics generally. So I like to have a variety of guests who can speak to the different things that this franchise gets at in ways that I can't always do. For example, one of the earliest episodes, and this was an absolute mensch moment from you, was early, very early in the run of the show, in episode six, you came on to talk about Cyclops. And one of the, that's an episode people talk to me about a lot still, because one of the things that we did there was you went into your reading of Cyclops as an autistic character and talking about mutants and disability politics. And a lot of people, they had never thought about that before. And it was really eye-opening for them. My father, who is on the autism spectrum and loves Cyclops above all other characters in the world and got me into X-Men in the first place, was really, his mind was blown by uh, by that episode. And then last November for Thanksgiving, I had him on the show uh, to talk about Sauron. So we got to revisit that a little bit. It's just, it's fun. It's fun. I love having guests on who can talk about their perspective as a racial minority. I have had a lot of trans guests who talk about certain narratives that speak to them. Uh, a lot of women guests, both cis and trans, who can speak to the gender stuff in a way that I can analyze from like an English major perspective, but can't always like feel primally in the same way. So uh, I just really love that, that format. And I'm blessed that a lot of people want to do the show. I mean, I've done 72 episodes and there are some repeat guests, but most of them are one-offs. That's yeah. One of the things that we talk about a lot here is basically the fact that every character or every story is somebody's favorite. And I feel like what you've done is such a vivid illustration of that because you've, you've got people who are passionate about characters who I've, 
you know, noticed, but never really necessarily given a second glance. But there's someone, someone who really just gravitates to. And I love getting that, you know, that passion and that perspective in, in ways that I, I would never have, have, you know, come across or, or come up with on my own. Right. Like there's somebody who really wants to talk about skin from Generation X, you know, and like that's a character I had thought about maybe twice in my entire life. And we had a great episode. It was Terry Bloss. He wanted to talk about how skin was one of the first Latino superheroes he'd ever seen in a comic and all of the complicated things about how that character's backstory operates in the story and everything else. And we got into a whole conversation about race and Latinidad and like being a Latino from multiple heritages and like all kinds of stuff that I would never have thought about myself or would never have thought to apply to this character who I, I mean, frankly, if the character is male, they have to really go out of their way to wow me for me to think about them. I'm very Chris Claremont that way. Um, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, I, I, I learned it from watching you, grandpa, Chris. Um, but yeah, so it, it's been really eye opening for me. One of the more interesting ones recently was Zoe Tonell was on and we talked about Laura Kinney, who's a character I really disliked when she debuted because oh, I, wow. yeah, I just really, she turned, I, I found, um, I don't want to get, I don't want to make anybody feel bad, but, but like, you know, I, uh, I just really didn't care for NYX and it left kind of a, a bad taste in my mouth. It was also the Destination era, which I wasn't thrilled about. So oh, I always forget that NYX was her comics debut. It sure was. And I was a little too old for Evolution when it was on the air. So I wasn't really familiar with her from that. So anyway, it was just this is a character that people love, like one of the most popular characters around. And I had just never gotten it. And so doing this episode, I went back and read a ton of stuff I had never read before. I read uh, the Marjorie Lewis 23, which I loved. Oh, that series is um, great. Yeah, I bought Tom Taylor's all-new Wolverine omnibus. Like, I did my reading, and what I found is that there's a lot... She's never going to be my favorite, but talking to somebody for whom she is a really important character on a lot of different levels, and one of their absolute favorites, it helped me understand not only the appeal of the character, but also the way that a character can start in maybe not like, I do believe any character with a couple exceptions. Like, I don't think we ever need to touch the mandrel or whatever, you know, but <laughs> there are some characters who sure let's leave in the past, but almost any character I think can be saved by a writer who cares. And if you were someone like me who really did not care for the Laura introduced in MYX seeing the character she's become now is honestly kind of inspiring because you're like, wow, look how far this person came. Look how far this fictional character came because so many people put a lot of work into reshaping the narrative around her and for her. And that's just one example. But every week, especially now, because we're 72 episodes in, so most of the heavy hitters, I would say like the only A-list characters that are still left to do are like Bishop, Jubilee, a couple others who I have like specific guests in mind for and it just hasn't come together. Um, but for the most part now we're doing like the C and D list, which I think is a lot of fun because then it's like, you know, Jordan Bloom wants to come on and talk for two and a half hours about skids. I'm in like, let's do it. What is there to say about skids for that long? I don't know, but we figured it out. And I think it's a pretty good episode. So it's just uh, it's an adventure and it helps me reconnect with this material that I've loved so much ever since I was a kid, which has been a real treat. Well, like you said about Celine, I think one of the great things about the C&D list stuff is that it's defined as much by its potential as by what's actually on the page. Because mm -hmm. you've got these characters who are, are way out in the weeds, 
who've, you know, existed for long enough and with enough canon to be evocative, but not really enough to be, you know, clearly set the way that a lot of the characters who have more appearances are. Yeah. And one thing about how my approach is different from Explain the X-Men that's helpful on that score is that if I'm talking about Celine for four hours, I don't have to talk about Nova Roma for more than 15 minutes. I mean, we talk about Nova Roma in funny ways, but like, it's not the same as, oh shit, we got to cover Nova Roma this week. We got to go through every page of this freaking story, which like, you know, that that's harder, I think, to do in a lot of ways because I can say... And then we get into such and such book I don't like very much. Don't worry about it. Here's what you need to know. It's like a couple sentences. If I had to go through, I mean, you guys are in the late 90s now. Yeah, we're like 97, 98. It, it's, That's a tough Time period. starts to pass really slowly in the 90s because there are mm-hmm. so many series and so many miniseries come out, coming out at once. So while I was able to keep track of, of where we were decade-wise pretty easily at first like now it's just slipped into this general 90s sludge state where i know we're technically moving forward in time but i i just don't really have any sense of time actually passing yeah that's an era that i generally just like skip right over in my like on my show because i jump like from aoa to morrison a lot or to claremont revolution because a lot of it just doesn't stick right like the siegel and kelly run is so brief the um and then onslaught is just that's a that's a slog. Oh God! Speaking of of all potential, no, no follow. No payoff. Yeah, because yeah. onslaught. I I was shocked at how good onslaught started out as. It starts out really strong, and then it's just. Then it's just it just fizzles. Yeah, it just it it like short circuits about a third of the way in, and never figures out what to do again. I think it's one of those problems they often have, which is that it's an event that should be the final Charles Xavier event. And they're never willing to do that. Like they're never mm-hmm. willing to pull the trigger because like executioner's song also should have been like, he should have died at that Lila Cheney con. Like, yeah, I was actually just listening to your strife episode where that comes out. Yeah. I mean, Muir Island saga was supposed to be like Claremont's intention was issue 300. He's done. And that was like, I mean, frankly in the sixties when they killed him, that should have been the end of it, but <laughs> they, they can't, I, I, I do believe that. I think that the book, was stronger without him. And I think he's a fascinating character. So it's for the best that they did bring him back. But by the time there's, there've now been so many times when it's like now the last Xavier story. And because he's from the Jim Lee 91 relaunch, we will never be rid of him. Like there's no character from that, that team, the team from the cartoon and from the comics around that period in the early nineties is the X-Men to people all over the world to the point where if you were in a costume in that period, you will always get put back in that costume. Like you cannot simply cannot escape. The patches (laughs) and jackets are forever. They're forever. And uh, I mean, it's so, you know, people keep saying um, people I'm, I'm, I'm a huge Betsy Braddock fan, but I was not, I was reading the eighties stuff, my dad's comics when I was a kid and I loved original style Betsy. And I was even as a child, like, disquieted by the the body swap plot line and as i got older it aged poorly for me uh you know and so i'm over the moon thrilled with the status quo now for betsy and conan who's a character that in the 90s i really liked i liked revanche a lot i thought she was really cool and people are now like well shouldn't she just like be revanche and wear a different costume and like do her own thing I'm like i understand what you're saying but 
Betsy can't be Jim Lee Psylocke and somebody has to be Jim Lee Psylocke. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, Rogue's Jim Lee costume, and this is controversial to me, is one of my least favorite Rogue costumes. It's the wrong color. I like her in green and black or green and white. Those are her colors to me. I like green and white. I like the hooded versions of her costume a lot. The hoods are great. The My favorite rogue look, I think, is probably the Mike Carey era that Bachelor designed that's sort of a yeah. reference back to that, but is like very voluminous and kind of witchy. Uh, my But my other favorite is like that in the Outback era when it's just a black unitard and she wears like green punk pieces over it that like change mm-hmm. issue to issue. I think that's really cool. Um so it just it, her in yellow, I'm always just like, that's not, that's not Rogue's color. It's like jean and orange. I'm like, why are we doing this? What's it's like, not even orange? It's almost kind of beige. Yeah, but like, why are we putting a redhead in like a in like a salmon pantsuit? It's like not. I would never do that to a redhead in real I life. I hate that costume so much. You were saying that's your least favorite Rogue. That is my <laughs> least favorite jean costume by such a wide margin, and they keep going back to it, and I just. It just, yeah. I just don't like it at all. It does not. It, and some of it is that I don't have any nostalgia for that era. Yeah, you know, I didn't, mm, right, I didn't watch right. those growing up. But also it's just, oh, it's so clunky. Well, the tragic thing about Jean is that Jean has one of the best superhero costumes ever and they won't let her wear it because mm-hmm. it's Phoenix. Well, and Dark Phoenix is an even better costume. I like the green, actually. For me, like green and gold are Jean's colors. I uh, like I love the Marvel girl look, which I know is controversial. I do mm-hmm. think that if they were, I, they've moved out of it. If they weren't going to move out of it, I do think that the, the silhouette of the dress could have used like maybe an update, but yeah. uh, I think that look is chic and cute. And my, my thing is I, I do, people would complain about the gloves and I do think in the sixties they were pretty form fitting. And I do think that in the modern stuff, they tend to look more, they have like big bell sleeves. Yeah, and they get, get more that's not everybody's. Yeah, I get that that's not everybody's favorite, but I just love that mask. No one wears a mask like that anymore. I I love the extent to which not only not only that mask, but like that that mask was the mask that Jean had for like the I'm going to do the femme version of everyone's got the same costume. Right. Like, like the mask is the cat eye glasses of superhero costumes. Right, because she started out in a full hooded cowl thing like the rest of them. And then clearly she was just like, my hair is getting ruined. So mm-hmm. I need to change this. And first it was like a blue or black, depending on how you look at it, uh, mask that matched the rest of theirs with the pointy top that's just in front. And then when she designed everyone's new costumes after graduation, she was like, I'm going with gold because it looks great with my hair. And it does. And green yeah. also looks great with her hair. Orange and navy blue do not look great with red hair. It's just not it's not the move. Especially on a comics page where it's it's comics page red. Like that's, that's Crayola red. Yeah, right. exactly. I feel like the colors that go together in comics and the colors that go together in real life are kind of different animals just because you lose so much in the way of texture and you're, you've got printing limitations. and. Oh, for sure. Well, well no one in real life has Jean and Madeline's hair color naturally that's like not a red hair color that people have like even a titian red that you might have is more like orangey than that so that would look even weirder in that orange jim lee look honestly she Uh, would look sickly i just i'm like gene honey you were a model what's going on like you're supposed to know your palette at least you know your angle she's always posing and it's like a great pose but i'm like we can't, this is not, 
You're not a winter. You're not a fall. I don't even know what color palette that is. Well, maybe that's the actual issue. She's used to the you know the, the wardrobe being chosen and, and assigned by somebody else. She's never really had to my theory. It. My theory is that when Madeline was cloned from her, Madeline got all of the fashion sense because Jean used to dress super well in the '70s. She had those cute backless tops and like the scarves. It was very sexy, but also like very. It didn't feel like inappropriate or, or overly sexual it was just sort of like this is a hot lady who likes fashion and in fact that black dress that she wears when Stephen lang kidnaps her i think that maddie's goblin queen look is like a direct reference to that right yeah i think absolutely brooch um but so i i do think that maybe along with the ability to open a hatch one of the things that maddie got was uh the fashion sense because poor Jean immediately starting in X factor, like her civilian, I mean, in X factor, she wears mostly like leotards and stuff, but the, the civilian clothes in the nineties are really, that wedding dress is beautiful. I'll give her that. But the wedding dress was explicitly designed by an actual designer who drew. Yes, it's right. Not, not designed by the artist of the comic. Correct. Yeah. I love the evolution of the X-Men's fashion and like the extent to which you see fashion as an aspect of comics are coming in and out of vogue over the decades mm-hmm. because it's it's so central right now yeah well with the gala and everything like i, I think that daughterman in particular has been pushing mm-hmm. that sort of high fashion sensibility into the comic in a way that feels to me pretty natural like seeing a lot of those gala costumes become regular costumes because people liked them so much like with some modifications or whatever i i think it's been really fun uh, my one note with Jean is like, I wish she had a pointy mask. I just love a pointy mask on that girl. But at least she has like a tiara. I need a head something on Jean. It's funny. The character whose mask profile has come closest to matching that for the longest time is actually Laura Kinney's. Yeah. Yeah. But to me, that's like just such a Wolverine mask that I don't like to, to me. That's like she's Wolverine. Like I, I don't, you know, whereas because it has the the whole cowl with it. I don't know. But you're right. It does have the pointy. I mean, the other character who still wears a mask with that is Firestar, but I don't want to get into Firestar. Is, is, are you are you opposed to Firestar or is it just because that's that's too deep? A, a Firestar, Firestar, I am opposed. I am I am anti Firestar. I was uh, no, I'm I don't actually care that much. It's just people are always asking when I'm going to do a Firestar episode. I'm like, Firestar is not an excellent character. Like, I don't you should just do an episode on butter rum. I feel like Butterrum has, he's had his time like on my show because I do talk about Butterrum a lot. And as far as I'm concerned, we should look into Butterrum because I'm not, I'm not confident that he was on the up and up. I think maybe Emma knew something we don't. So, so he's from the, the long legacy of, of creepy horses in comics because, you know, we've got, um, what's his name? Comet, who was. was Comet, the super yeah. horse. Yeah. This, this is the stalker horse. Yeah. I, I don't like. I mean, frankly, I find horses unsettling. They're too big. Thank you. Same. <laughs> they can kick you and kill you in like a second. I just don't, well, I don't care for it. People talk about them like they're puppies. Like, I feel like if people right, talked no. about horses more like they talk about tigers, I'd be entirely sanguine with them. But instead they're like, oh, it's my sweet little whoopee who once kicked me in the pelvis and sent me. Then, you know, I, that's why I have iron rods instead of bones in my entire body now. And I love him. Right. Like the second I read about Christopher Reeve when I was a kid, I was like, I'm good on horses. Like I was like, I don't need to be near a horse. They can take a wide berth. I mean, like a little Shetland pony or something is fine. But even then, like they got hooves. I don't know. It's it's not their teeth are really big. It's not it's just not it's not for me. 
I'm okay with the really, really little ones and the really, really big ones, but the ones that are like racehorse proportion just weird me the hell out. Scary. I don't, it's not acceptable. To yeah, me. no, they're like, they're like, like siege weaponry with a head. Yeah, it's not good. And so I, um, I mean, I guess Butterum technically was a pony, but which is different. Like I, I, I always thought when I was a kid, like I think most people do like a pony was a baby horse, but it turns out that's not the case. Uh, the, no. But, you know, I mean, I, I, I do. I did learn that many years ago. I, it's not something I thought until recently. I'm just saying I, I didn't get it as a, as a I kid. I learned that they were different from the Maple Hill Farm books, which are still like my favorite picture books ever. I don't think I read those. Oh, my God. They're so great. I'm, I'm not going to do this right now because this is <laughs> an audio medium. But I was going to be like, I know exactly where they are on the shelf and I could just pull one out. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Illustrations. But no. Oh, God. They're so, so, so good. They're, they're Alice and Martin Provenson. And I'll, I'll put a link to them in the visual companion to this episode <laughs> because I'm, I'm all about um, evangelizing the gospel of Maple Hill Farm. But what you said about fashion is so true because I think one of the things that makes the X-Men feel current in every era that they're in is that unlike Spider-Man or Captain America or Iron Man, who sometimes will have a new look, but it never sticks. The X-Men actually do change a lot with the fashion of the times, particularly in the Claremont period, they more would have, and this is why it bothers me when a character is in the wrong color, because through Claremont's run, it's like, okay, Rogue wears green, Dazzler wears blue. You know, like we know that Storm wears black, but they can change the outfit to look like it's 1982 or 1987. And you still recognize the character and it still looks like their costume because you associate the the visual markers with like if Dazzler, because this is Claremont Dazzler, obviously she wore silver at the beginning, but if she's wearing blue and has the starburst somewhere on her body in yellow, you're like, that's Dazzler. And she can have a jacket. She can have a shrug. She can have a halter top. Like it doesn't matter what exactly the outfit is. And so it can change to look very current. And that does mean that in the sliding timescale, it's funny to think of like everybody with a huge perm like two years ago because, you know, but uh, I think that it's part of what makes the X-Men feel timeless Act, like ironically is like that they have existed in every time and we can see that we can point to that the awkwardness of it is when sometimes we try to go back to things that were very current at the time like storm's mohawk for example which i love but at the time that was extremely cutting edge fashion and now it looks retro so it's a different thing to do with her i really like the compromise that the new Daughterman design has where it's sort of a faux hawk with the textured hair. I think that's much more current in terms of like a hairstyle that you would see on a runway now, you know, well, and her being allowed to have that textured hair really well, for, yeah, for the first time in the character. Huge. Existence. Absolutely. Yeah. Be I mean, to the point where in the early stuff, they make a point of how straight and silky her hair is, uh, which, you know, is a very loaded thing to do with a black, character. with your extremely the, the biggest black character in big two comics. At, for a very, very long time. I think that Black Panther, because of the movies, has probably now pulled ahead. But Storm was, she had a ride at Universal Studios. Like, she was a big, big character. Um, and that's actually one of the things that in my Storm episode, Rashida Renee Ward, my guest for that, talked about how she had trouble relating to Goddess Storm in, like, the 70s because of the visual signifiers that she had that didn't feel like, black features and that then when punk storm happened she was like i can rec like i recognize this woman this is a woman i would see in my neighborhood like this is someone who is real uh you know even if the texture of the mohawk was still not 
Right. What did you think of the direction that Greg Pak took that era? In terms of the look? No, in terms of specifically the, the <laughs> retcon of the goddess stuff. Um, I don't like when Storm is a literal goddess. Yeah. I think that... Because the question is, what's a god, right? Because in the Marvel Universe, like, the Asgardians are aliens. The, I mean, they're also, like, from the Elder God, Gaia, and whatever. Like, the, the, it's all complicated, but the Eternals, the Olympians, the Asgardians, like, sometimes they're quote-unquote magic. But in the Marvel Universe, magic is just another form of energy that you can map like any other kind. It's just accessed in a different way. That's actually something that the Krakoa era of X-Men is illustrating really well, I think, with the mutant magic and Excalibur and the mutant circuits and sword brand and apocalypse are talking about the same stuff, but she's framing it through really logical scientific formats. And he's framing it through a more ancient model of like, here's how a community operates in like a magical or religious way. Um, so what I like about storm is that I think Charles is wrong in giant size when he tells her that she's not a goddess. But I don't think he's wrong because she's actually a divine magical being. I think he's wrong because, as Magneto says in House of X, you have new gods now. What does it mean to be an Omega-level mutant? There's nothing, there's nothing more divine than Storm. I mean, that's why her current role is so cool, because no one else could be that figurehead to the entire galaxy. She's like our, our whole planet as one person. And that's so powerful unto itself, particularly to me, if it's because of something natural in her human self that is part of her marginalized. Like she is a marginalized person on a number of levels. She's a woman, she's black, she's an immigrant. Well, she's originally American, but she grew up overseas. So she's also, and it's complicated. But I think that her intrinsic humanity is important to that story. I, I don't like, I think it makes her more interesting than a character like Thor. And so when you try to make Storm into Thor, I find that less interesting. I like when they interact because they're, they, they play off each other in a fun way. But um, I prefer when goddess is theoretical because any, like what does it mean to become divine? Like it's very D and D, right? Like how do you ascend to godhood? I think that, with planet size X-Men characters like Magneto and Storm and Jean have established themselves in a pantheon yeah. without needing to have a divine godhead within them. Well, going back to the Pac run in particular, the aspect of, of the goddesshood that gets, that gets retconned that I really appreci appreciated was how the people in the village she was at perceived her. Yeah, that was cool. That they weren't, that it was the, that, that it wasn't, you know, they assume that she's divine. It was the, she's a kid with powers she brings the rain. She's clearly a little funny in the head, but there's no reason not to accommodate that. Yeah. And I think, I think it's better. It's definitely better when it's portrayed as something that is like cultural and logical in its cultural basis, as opposed to the way that it was originally presented, which was sort of like, oh, you're so ignorant child. Like, come with me. You think you're magical. You're just a mutant. And I don't, I think there's a happy medium there between that and her being like a fully mad. I love Storm. Storm is like one of my lifelong favorite characters, but I prefer when she is a human elevated rather than a higher being yeah. in human form. I love the added framing of the goddess mythos as something she created for herself. 
Yes. Like as a kid or as a teenager, as like the narrative she needed to survive. Yes. And I like because that presenting herself like, that way. It feels like the stories you tell yourself when you're a teenager, when everything's horrible and you just desperately need to convince yourself you're a protagonist. Right. Particularly as a marginalized person, like the way that you decide that you're exceptional because the world is telling you that you're not worth anything. And so you're like, actually, I'm worth everything. Like it's a it's a, it's a resistance gesture. Right. And I, I mean, I, I think in character, it's brilliant. And I think Storm is a goddess, but I don't I just don't like when it's like when she's like a Hercules or Thor type. Yeah. Goddess. I just, I, to me, that's less interesting than the idea that a human can become that, uh, which I think she has. What, um, what's been your favorite character? Like to 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 drag you into the Cerebro place for a minute while doing explain the X Men, which it's been eight years now, right? That's almost crazy. yeah. When I like I when I first thought about doing an X Men podcast, it was actually many years ago, and I thought. There's no point in doing an X-Men podcast because Jay and Miles are already doing the X-Men podcast that I would want to do. And it's oh, good. I can't, I can't disagree it. with that anymore, like, <laughs> any more vehemently. I, I know, but I, there, I'm also obsessed. There's so, I mean, I think, I think what, what you ended up doing with it is, is, is kind of proof of concept in just the sense that there are, and actually what you said earlier, there, there's like an infinite number of angles from which to approach this infinitely complex material. Absolutely. And once I got into fandom in a way I haven't really been since I was a kid, I was like, oh, like there are dozens of excellent. Like I just was only conscious of of J.M. Miles. And so I was just like, well, they're already doing that. And I don't want to like rip them off. I have an anxiety disorder. Like I'm, you know, insecure or whatever. But when I came up with the character idea, I was like, oh, this is different. This will this would complement that show. These are different experiences that people can have. It's two different ways of accessing the material. You can listen to both and really like each would enrich the other. And that was appealing to me. So to drag you into my space for a little bit, over these eight years, I know Cyclops is like your fave, but what has been the most like surprising or interesting character trajectory to trace through the whole like chronological era from 63 to 97 or wherever you are now, 98? You're the, you, I saw you tweet about the Manites, so it's definitely late yeah. 90s. Somewhere nightmare. somewhere in 97 or 98. <laughs> um, well, he hasn't been around for nearly all of that, but I think I think the character who who out of nowhere became one of my very favorites was Shatterstar. Isn't he fascinating? He's another yeah. one. I had never, I had never thought, I mean, I, I love a ginge, so like, Sure, but I had never really thought about him on a deeper level besides like "Good for you, Julio," you know. Uh, <laughs> and then, and then I did an episode with my friend Luke Ruddick, um, who loves that character. And now I'm like, yes, my king, Shatterstar. Like I'm because I went back and read a lot of stuff I'd never read from the '90s. Because X Force was such a macho book that I skipped over. Like I was. I was like, where are the girls? I want the Claremont vibe. I want, you know, I want a lady team. The Outback era is my favorite lineup of X-Men because I'm just like, it's all awesome ladies with cool powers in incredible outfits doing, you know, their thing. And they go, it's the X-Men, but they're all girls. It's like, it's fine. Colossus is here. It's fine. Whatever. Havoc's off in the corner just having a lot of feelings. Havoc and Colossus are both there looking gorgeous with not a thought in their pretty little heads. And uh, Longshot is being adorable and it's great. You know, everything like let let Storm and Betsy drive. Don't let Betsy drive too much, though. She makes terrible decisions. But, you know, she tries her best. But I, I love <laughs> Shatterstar. I, I went in sort of I, I, I avoided X-Force initially for a lot of the same reasons that you did. It just felt like distilled you know, 
big pecs, big guns. Everything about the 90s that I don't Nin- love right. about, you know? And what I learned really fast was that, like, the very beginning of it is, and then Nicieza comes in. Nicieza's X-Force is great. And, and I had not yeah, read it and straight it through until I did this show. Everything, and it becomes one mm-hmm. of the best books. And Shatterstar goes from a guy with a sword with two blades, which was basically his personality initially, to yeah. this really interesting, really sweet kid who's completely out of his element and, like, trying to figure out how to person. Yeah, and that book, like, underneath Ciesa, that book does feel like New Mutants. My problem with it, and especially under John Francis Moore in The Road I mean, that is just a New Mutants volume, I think, The Road Oh, I'm so excited. Era. We just got to the beginning of Moore's Oh, run. it's so good. Um... That was a weird sound I just made. Sorry. But it is really great. I, I wish more of it was collected. I hope they do some epics or something because it's not on Marvel Unlimited. And I, I people keep asking, like, where can I read Siren's Alcoholism story? I'm like, unfortunately, it's not on Marvel Unlimited. But, you yeah. know. You can read it in the back rooms of a lot of flea markets. Exactly. Like, you can find that on eBay. Um, but I... Uh, I think that for me, X-Force was like, they turned New Mutants into this, like, boy book that I didn't recognize from reading it from the 80s into the 90s. And then I think that it sort of course corrects. And there's nothing wrong with a boy book. It's just not... When I say, like, boy book in the 90s sense, it's like, you know, Punisher, Venom, that kind of stuff that just never... I mean, in this case, very much, like, in the Punisher mold of, like, big guns, big whatever. Like, it's not... Uh, it was just never my never my vibe. So it's funny to see how Nisiesa reframes it, the way he uses the character of Siren to do a lot of interesting stuff, the way that Domino becomes a more interesting character in that period. Um, you know, I'm just, I mean, I'm, I, I know that you agree with me. I'm, I'm a Nisiesa head. I think oh, that yeah. he yeah. is the best of the 90s writers by far i think he's really strong um he he tends i think to get overlooked because he's in the middle of such messes mm -hmm. um yeah but i feel like in a lot of ways tonally he's kind of the heir apparent to claremont absolutely he writes in a claremontian style uh well and he gradually grows his own voice out of that yes yes but it starts it starts as like in a way that's very different from how like Liefeld was rejecting Simonson's style or mm. Lee was rejecting Claremont's style. Nisiesa is writing in a way that feels very spiritually similar to Claremont's. It's very operatic. It's very romantic. It's very dramatic. And then, yeah, his, his voice becomes really natural over time. There are a couple issues like, you you know, we talked about X-Man in the uh, in the cold open. And there's a, the issue that introduces Threnody that Nisiesa wrote is a, like the, the narration in that is just fantastic. Like I miss the heavy narration of yeah. classic comics. It's something I, I think we could use more of. I mean, your uh, Snapshots issue was very narrated and I enjoyed that, that a is, lot. Credit goes to Kurt for that. Like, he really kind of had to coax and elbow me into into putting in that level of narration. Like, more words. You've got Tom Wojciechowski. Yeah. Make him letter. Like... <laughs> no, I think he actually said that at one point. <laughs> I would if it were me. My God, yeah. what a dream. Um, But uh, that's just a Shatterstar. That's a good one. I mean, there are so many characters that I had never really like given i mean the one that's been really interesting actually is gambit because i mm. uh, i always said i'm gambivalent was <laughs> a bit early in the show and 
I've now read a lot of stuff I had never read, like particularly women writing Gambit, which I seem to like more. Yeah. So that's that is what got me to the point of liking Gambit or part of what got me to the point of liking Gambit as a character was specifically Marjorie Liu's run on X-23. And that was also what made me realize that that I liked Gambit primarily when women wrote him, because I feel like when guys write him. They fall into the writer equivalent of nice guy syndrome, where they write him as the guy who they think all the women want. Mm-hmm. And he's actually a massive creep. And then when women write him, they actually write him as the guy all the women want. Yes. And he's very charming and kind of a dumbass, but in a fun way. Like, I love Marjorie Liu's writing of him both in X-23 and in her Astonishing Run. I think Kelly Thompson writes a really fun gambit. I actually really love Teenie's uh, gambit and yeah. Excalibur. I'm excited to see... Uh, where all the characters go in Knights of X. I, full disclosure, I work with Teeny and we're very good friends. So for listeners who don't know, I work with Teeny Howard and Steve Orlando in my day job. I'm a literary agent. I don't work with them on their comics work, but I know them very well. So that's my full disclosure uh, before I start praising my client's work. But I'm I'm very excited to have two friends slash clients in the uh, X office right now. It's, I think, a golden era. I don't think the line has been this strong since the Claremont Simonson Nascenti heyday. But the other thing that got me thinking different about Gam- or differently about Gambit was actually much, much more recent. As I guessed it on a podcast that's not going to be out till like much, much later. I'm not sure exactly when. Um, which is Bitches on Comics, which is also fantastic, by the way. But with Sarah Century. Yeah, with Sarah my, Century. And um, my most frequent guest, actually. She's one of so the good. things that came up on is we were talking about X Men characters who could be read as trends. And I'd never thought about it before, but I was thinking about it. I was thinking that Gambit makes a ton more sense if you read him as a trans man. That's fascinating. Like, as someone who is feeling out his performance of masculinity. Well, and also that would add an interesting layer to the rogue dynamic in the early 90s when he's okay with the fact that they can't be physically intimate because maybe he's still processing certain things or he wants to talk to her about it before they get to that place or what, you know? Exactly. And it click, it also, it clicks with a lot of backstory tropes and connections, but like if he's, if he's stealth is what I'm saying. Like it would. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, this is, I feel like this is the place where I need to qualify that. I'm not saying that all trans guys do this or are like this. I'm saying that this is, you know, relevant to a very specific type of, experience instead of tropes and comics characters are fictional and all that fun but yeah no, of and course. no one character represents an entire population and i can't believe i'm saying this this late in the show and i've said this a million times anyway but i feel like i kind of have to when you're out in public and sharing opinions and you're influential in whatever way in a fandom there does this is something that i've found to be really powerful but also scary is like you know people send in emails to me every week with incredibly personal stories anecdotes some that they say please share this in the podcast others where they say this is just for you i just wanted you to know this and i really i mean for example i'm about to record an episode on conan uh psylocke formerly revanche and uh my guest is an asian woman and a lot of asian women have written in with their feelings on Conan on Betsy, on Conan being Psylocke, on all of that, on their experience of learning Psylocke's backstory as an Asian reader of comics, like that kind of stuff that's so personal. And I feel a real responsibility to honor that. And so therefore, when I'm talking about these issues, particularly issues that don't pertain to myself, right? Like, I mean, you know, we've all got gender stuff, but I don't think of myself as a trans person. So when I'm talking about trans stuff, I really want to be careful because this is a community that is not usually given a voice in 
the same way that his people are. And I don't want to speak over people, but I also don't want to not bring up things that are raised to me. Like if trans women tell me that they identify with Stacey X, I'm going to bring that up in the Stacey X episode while also saying, obviously, if the one trans character was a sex worker, that would be a stereotype and this and that. But on the other hand, exactly. I have a lot of trans women friends who have done survival sex work. Like that is a real struggle that people experience. So like I just try to present the panoply of opinion and and not take too hard a stance on anything that isn't about me right well and even there even even with this like the the talking about you know headcanoning trans mask characters as a trans mask person mm-hmm. differentiating between speaking as versus speaking for feels like a line that like i need to verbally draw a lot yeah it's it's hard i mean like yeah i mean i make jokes like well gay people are like this and i'm, I'm talking about myself and my friend like i'm just being funny you know um but once you have thousands of people listening every week it is a little scary to think like i just i don't want to say something that hurts somebody that's all you know i take that very seriously and i'm sure i have because it's impossible not to but you know i just try to be conscientious well and and to to do to not let that completely dominate what you're doing because there's there's the line that i i think of as the um (laughs) that i think of as the hunting humans for sport line just because of how it came up on our podcast (laughs) <laughs> which was which is sort of the the there is a level of concern that it is reasonable to de facto accommodate and there's a level of concern that it's not necessarily um like i am i am comfortable joking about hunting humans hunt, hunting humans for sport and i am not terribly remorseful for having re- offended someone by doing so sure i mean listen i love the character celine i think she's super fucking funny uh she's also evil as hell she is a seventeen thousand year old parasite and serial killer so like i and don't she's responsible for like the worst continuity clusterfuck well sure but that will no chris is responsible for that if we're going to be real because nisius's oh, yeah. retcon is brilliant and then chris and extreme was just like nope nova rome is real because i say so and it was like chris but that was such a better story like just let it be what it is to me nova rome is still a fake theme park that that celine made for funsies and i think that's Hilarious. Yeah, I love that take on it. But, you know, um, I don't know. I actually, I was pretty upset because I something happened on Twitter a couple of weeks ago where, and I'm trying to use Twitter less because I just think it's like bad for my mental health. But at the same time, mm-hmm. like that's where you talk to your audience, right? So yeah, it's, it's complicated. It's, it's the water, it, in the comics industry, it feels like it's the water cooler. It's just a really, really fucking big water cooler. Yeah, where anybody can yell at you whatever they want, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's this one arc of Captain America, like around Secret Empire, where Tanahasi Coates, because he loves Celine, had Celine work with Hydra in like the evil plot or whatever. And so I was excited about Celine being an immortal X Men coming up. And someone retweeted it and was just like, oh, you stand Nazis. And I'm like, I'm like, first of all, she's a 17,000 year old vampire. She was in Nova Roma when World War II happened. She doesn't know who the Red Skull is. This is a guy who offered her a check to like fight Captain America. Relax. But also, what are you doing? Like, first of all, I'm Jewish, and that's a rude thing to say to me. Like, leaving that aside, what is what is that about? Like, what like that's that's the moment where I think you do have to set up a boundary. It's like I am laughing about a supervillain. Like, I and and Celine's, in my opinion, not a Nazi. In fact, in X Corp, she very explicitly talks about how Nazis and racists are the warlords she respects the least because she thinks it's illogical and stupid. And because, frankly, 
that's what makes sense, given that she predates the modern concept of race, given how old she is. I mean, she would have been in the Mediterranean and North Africa and would not have been thinking about this stuff um, in that way. Anyway, the Greeks thought of it very differently, as did the Romans. Uh, I was a classics major. Sorry. Like, <laughs> but, um, but no, but th- this is all beside the point. The point is just like, I-, I was sort of like, this upset me because it's an upsetting thing to have leveled at you as an accusation. But also it's like, guys, I'm talking about like a vampire from the dawn of time. Like it's, it's silly. A fictional like, it's, vampire from the dawn of she's time. She's not which I real. Kind of goes without saying, but yeah. Right. But I'm like, but I'm like, I also make lots of jokes about her eating that gay guy who helped Rachel out in the eighties because poor Nick Damiano, RIP to a King. But like, I, I'm just like, cause it's funny. It was so nice. He was a really sweet guy. And like, she buried that gay six feet deep, actually inside herself. My favorite thing about Celine that is not usually used in stories is that she has all of the memories of everyone she's ever consumed. So I want her to sit down at like the Green Lagoon one day and just be like, Rachel, did I ever tell you about Nick Damiano's gap year? And Rachel's like, I don't want to have this conversation with you, Celine. (laughs) But no, what you're talking about, like that specific fiction consumption purity culture. Yeah, that drives me crazy. something that I have so much trouble with. We get these, you, you were talking about emails from, from listeners and the one, we get these ones occasionally that just, that break my heart that are basically, does it make me a bad person to like X or Y mm-hmm. or Z thing because it's problematic and, or X or Y or Z fictional character. Right. Or, or to identify with that. And I feel so strongly that while there are situations in which consumption and promotion of specific properties can contribute to harm, oh, Harry Potter. Um, sure. I mean, like, yeah, who are you giving your money to and who, which artists are you, which artists are you elevating? The real people. I think that that is something we're thinking about. Yeah. The right. real people are the relevant factor there. And even, even sometimes then saying, I got a lot of a lot out of this. It was important to me. It is something that I can now not in good conscience promote is is fine. Like it, you don't you you're not retroactively a villain because you cared about this thing whose creator turned out to be horrible. And fiction, fiction and those sort of amalgams are so much of how we learn to define ourselves as people and learn to be people and learn to encounter and, and interact with each other and just learn to frame the world that like the idea that there are things it's not okay to enjoy and that you have to maintain this level of like moral purity relative to the fiction you consume or relative to the characters you enjoy is is so so profoundly destructive i think it ha- i think it shuts down online conversation in a oh, way yeah. that has yeah. been really uh, unfortunate i mean you remember the way that like fandom used to be like now we sound like (laughs) boomers or whatever but you know like i remember chatting with people about x-men on scans daily or on uncannyxmen.net or on x-fan or on like a million whatever the thing that x-fan was after it was x-fan you know what i mean like uh the subreality cafe like r-a-p-k-l and all those people were amazing like i was a a kid who was just like reading quietly because i wasn't supposed to be there because it was 18 plus but uh, you know, the, the early internet was a wild west, guys. But it was like you click a button. It's like I'm 18. I swear to God. Um, but you know, I I just think that. I mean, I just did an episode on Sabretooth, actually, and, and that was really uh, that's that's one where I have trouble with that character because yeah, of like the the deep sexual violence inherent to that character. I find him distressing. I and I do find it distressing when stories 
valorize him in a certain way. I don't like that. There's a difference between valorizing that character from a creative position of power. Right. And liking him as a reader because he's a fun bad guy. Like, I don't think there's... And, and, you know, I I just think... Here's a here's another example. I really hate Quentin Quire. Quentin Quire is one of my like least favorite characters. Oh, ever. you should have said that at the beginning. We could have had this whole episode could have been a conversation about that because he's one of my favorites. I know, and that's why I've waited to say this. Damn it. No, that would have been fun. <laughs> I love I want to save it for the Quentin episode when I get there. Right. I love Riot at Xavier's. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the best X-Men stories ever. I therefore hate pretty much every story that Quentin has ever appeared in after Riot at Xavier's, which I think is an incredibly prescient take by Morrison on the rise of the right, the alt-right on, you know, extremism that was growing in our generation of millennials under the surface because of dissatisfaction, because of post 9-11 ennui, because of like whatever. I think that he's a brilliant character as that and when he was valorized and and is often valorized and made into like a nice character or or at least a good character it turns my stomach a little bit because he was like a a gross incel stalker creep alt-right fash guy to me this is fascinating because i there's there's so much that overlaps in my read but like the conclusions i come to from it are very very different we we got it we got to do an episode that's just like talking about riot at xavier's at some point because this is this is really interesting i would love to do that with you but i so my so here that's 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 the thing for me is uh, i that character turns me off seeing that character in a heroic position turns me off i actually really do like i I would rather read about anybody else, but I like how Ben Percy's been writing him in X-Force because I think it marries the Morrison characterization more closely with the stuff that Jason Aaron and writers after him, like Christina Strain, did with the character. Um, I, But I, it's just, it's not for me. Do I think that you are an alt-right incel fascist if you identify with Quentin Quire? No, because he's a fictional character. You're not standing Milo Yiannopoulos like but you get what i'm saying like he's not real and i like and there are lots of things about his story that dissatisfaction that millennial that feeling of being lost as a millennial in the broader world not knowing where you belong feeling rejected by the people you're attracted to. Like, I understand a lot of the reasons why that character would appeal to people. Well, and there are readers who came in with the Jason Aaron run, for instance, whose version, whose, whose definitive version of Quentin Quire is a very, very different one, which again, very different. is so specific to fictional characters that you can, you can say. They're not well, real. Actually, that's, that's not really a specific thing to fictional characters because you can, you can sort of, to an extent, apply that to real people and say, yes, I really appreciated you know, I got to know this person during this phase or whatever, but, but is which PJ Harvey album do you like the best? Cause she's such a chameleon. Sure. But right. But is, is pretty much always applicable with fictional characters. Particularly like Mr. Sinister is another great example. I always get a lot of shit for loving Mr. Sinister, yes. which I do. I'm sorry. He's a great character. Oh, likewise. And, like, no, he's yes, delightful. a book I don't like retconned him into a Nazi in a story that no one likes. So just, let it go. Not every story has to be true. I think that there is, this is a, to me, a, an outgrowth of fandom culture, which is the idea that of the canon and the idea that like every story has equal weight. And I just don't think that like, there is no other genre of fiction where that's true. 
Yeah. Well, there, there's no other genre of fiction where that's true and where there are that many people playing in the sandbox over that long a period of time. Right. Exactly. Because so because one writer and again, like to, to go to Selene for a second, because one writer, a writer who I think is great and a writer who did this because he loved the character and wanted to use her and happened to be writing Captain America, wrote a story where Selene did a job for Hydra. Now she's a Nazi forever and it's wrong to like that character. I think that's insane. This is a character with a f- almost 40 year publication history. You know, and with so many writers and their hands and thing, and like, you don't have to like all of it. You don't have to like any of it. I'm just saying it's 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 odd to me. I don't get it, and that's I think a disconnect that I have with some of the the discourse, and it, that that scares me because I look nobody likes to get yelled at on the internet by strangers. It's not a good feeling, and so when I put up an episode about a character who might be, I was I was really nervous about the saber tooth episode. Because Victor Laval and I talk very candidly about the rape and murder of Silver Fox, about all of the other horrible things. I mean, to me, the iconic Sabretooth story, because I'm a Betsy fan, is the end of Mutant Massacre with him and Betsy. In the, but he's chasing her through the mansion in her nightgown, tearing it and breaking her bones and threatening her sexually. And it's like, you know, I, that character is tough for me. But... What I love about what Victor's doing with that book, which I think is brilliant, if listeners haven't picked up the new Sabretooth mini, I really do recommend it. Um, You know, that book is about the carceral state. That book is about incarceration. And what Victor is interested in is, obviously, a character like Oya, if she ends up in the pit, shouldn't be there. We know that because we know her and we know that she doesn't deserve this. Sabretooth does, quote unquote, deserve to be punished, but... What do the guilty deserve is the question there, right? He said on my show, like, my intention is not to make you like Sabretooth. And that is like, that's like, or or rather, my intention is not to make you think Sabretooth is a good dude, you know? And I think that that's like, there's nothing wrong. The Quentin Choir fans that I enjoy talking to, to to take it to him again. I'm sorry, I'm like tangenting all over the place, but this is, this is a big conversation. Like this is a big topic and it's, it's hard. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I feel like we've, we've, we've landed on a couple things that kind of should be episodes on their own and in their own right. And I'll just, I'll just sum it up here. But like, I was just saying to someone, I was like, the Quentin Choir fans I can fuck with are the people who know the Quentin Choir is an asshole and are okay with me saying so. And when they're explaining to me why they identify with Quentin Choir, also understand why I might not identify with Quentin and why I might find him really repulsive. I mean, like in the Sling conversation, there was that person who said that really horrible thing to me. There was also another Jewish reader who asked me, like, how do you justify being a fan of this character when she worked with Hydra? And I was like, to me, it's one story that's not in an X-Men book. I don't. And, and she has explicitly denounced Nazism in other stories. And also she's a bad guy. So I just like don't feel the need to to really like I think Viper's great, too. And she is a Nazi. Like, I think that character's fun, though. I enjoy reading stories about her. Well, the problem with having default universe spanning bad guys is that at some point every villain is going to be to some extent affiliated with them. Exactly. Like Hydra is so big that I think it's impossible. Mm-hmm. I, I don't unless they're like the Struckers or whatever, or like Baron <laughs> Zemo. Struckers. Like, yeah, but you get what I'm which I but I also I also love Fenris. I think they're great villains. No, I know. I just I just find that Struckers, the Struckers are just so cartoonish. Yeah, they're cartoon characters. I think they're hilarious. And like, 
you know, am I going to make Spencer Ackerman do three hours on Fenris with me? You bet your ass I am, because I think two Jews laughing about these cartoon Nazis will be funny. And sometimes you have to laugh about this stuff. So, But what I said to that Jewish reader, I was like, this is my read. And she was like, to each their own. I just can't get there with like hydrophilic characters. And I was like, that's completely fair. Mm-hmm. If that's like a boundary that you need to set for yourself because of whatever feelings you have about that, like that's beyond fair. There are a lot of people who simply can't tolerate Betsy Braddock because of the 30-year body swap. Now, in the story, she didn't do it. It was done to her. But out of the story, she did benefit culturally from being a faux sexy Asian lady for 30 years in popular culture. So there are people for whom that character is always just going to be a little tainted, and I get it. There are also people, though, who've reached out to me and said, the way that you're so open to hearing this stuff and the way that you talk about the character and about that storyline while loving the character has made, and these are people who... I mean, one of them is my my friend, Justin Park, who just did the Sunfire episode with me. Like, these were people who were like, this white man is never going to make me like Betsy Braddock. I was like, I- I'm not saying you have to like her, but they were like, I get, though, why you do. And that's where I'm trying to get with this is like, I'm never going to be the world's biggest Gambit fan. But doing a Gambit episode and reading all of that stuff I hadn't read and really like digging into like Gambit solo. I had read some of the Gambit solo stuff because I'm obsessed with Amanda Mueller, also a really terrible, evil character. I get it now. I get why people love Gam. And that makes me feel good because this is a franchise I love and I want to, like, I want to understand why people love Academy X. Yeah. I could not give less of a shit. That's, so that's the shift I want to see in fandom discourse. I want to see the shift going from you shouldn't like this to why do you like this? Right. And not in an accusatory way. Well, I, I, I feel like the, the, the accusatory aspect of it is part of this much, much larger quest for moral simplicity like that generationally you've mm-hmm. got groups of people who are growing up in this horribly screwed up world who are yeah but but a horribly screwed up world with dominant political discourse that whichever side you look at it from is all about us and them in this this radically polarized position and and i i say this fully believing that one side of that is right by the way so you know Take it as you will. Yeah, no, I'm not trying to be a moral relativist about real people. Let me be very clear. <laughs> no, but but who who are are used to that being how you talk about things mm-hmm. and want, you know, a simple rubric from which you can decide whether someone is a good person or whether someone's OK to listen to or whatever. And so are simplifying the messy reality of being a person down to can you tick this checkbox are you now or have you ever been problematic and the answer ultimately is always going to be yes it's it's your fave is problematic.tumblr.com culture like no matter what and ironically the difference and i think the people you should be paying attention to um and not are that the ones who are are worth actually listening to are generally the ones who when someone says your fave makes me really uncomfortable stop and listen yeah like not the ones who lock down are like no i am in the correct moral position like you don't apply moral relativism to real people but fictional characters especially and and fiction and enjoyment of fiction and and relationships to fiction are so profoundly personal yes and fictional characters are by definition morally relative because morally relative because they don't make their own decisions right and especially again ones who exist in sandbox universes right so like when, uh, you know, there's a couple reasons I did Betsy as my first episode of the show. One is that 
This Krakoa era is what inspired me to get back into comics after kind of falling off for a while. And I, one of the things that did it, and this is how I became friends with Teeny and, and how we started working together, was I never thought I would get my Betsy back, ever. And so when Jim Zub did that Mystery Magic Report, first of all, I thanked him at New York Comic Con. I was like, I have waited literally, it, it was, I was one when the hand did that. And so I've been waiting literally my entire life for that to be undone. But then watching her become Captain Britain, which is what Betsy has always wanted more than anything else, is so powerful to me. And I, I loved the story and I was really engaged. So I was like, okay, I'll do that first because she's my childhood favorite. She, I also have Teeny, who's writing the character, would like to come on and talk about the characters. So that was cool. It got people interested in this like new podcast that nobody had heard of. But then also, because she's so messy, because she makes people uncomfortable, because that story is racist, I wanted to address it right out the gate, right? I wanted to be like, yeah, let's talk about it. Like, let's talk about the reasons this character is fraught in a lot of ways, because I don't want people to think that when I'm saying this is my favorite character, I'm trying to justify everything that's ever been done with that character. These are not characters that any of the writers own and they're characters that are written by 50 different people and there are like at least four different writers i'm aware of who tried to undo the body swap at different points in those 30 years and were told no because the asian psylocke had become the iconic psylocke so corporate comics is just really i i feel like a lot of fans especially like fans in discussion don't really understand and this is not their fault because it's very opaque but how this stuff gets made also like how yeah. it works. Yeah. I think, I think a lens onto that is such an important part of. And when you know people yeah. who write it, it's frustrating, you know, but uh, you know, I, I mean, the other reason I did Betsy first was because if you can follow Betsy's storyline with me as a newbie, then you're going to be okay. I opened season two with cable. I was like, okay, here's hard mode. Are you ready? <laughs> um, yes. So, you know, I, I just, to me, what's important is being respectful of other people's boundaries. But that also means I need to be able to set a boundary. Like, I, I try not to acknowledge, like, mean comments or whatever, because I don't think it's productive. But with the, like, you stand Nazis thing, I, I, made, I, like, made a little tweet thread about it. And I was embarrassed after I did it. But people told me, like, don't be embarrassed. That was a really upsetting thing. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I just really, I'm like, I'm a gay Jew. Don't tell me I stand Nazis because I like a fictional vampire. Like, shut up. That's so, you don't know me. You can't just talk to people like that. And I need to like, I was like, I'm not, here's the deal. I'm not engaging in Hydra discourse on that level anymore. Like, I'm just not going to do it because I don't want it to, oh, this is, if you want to sit down with me at FlameCon and have a conversation about it over a cup of coffee, that's one thing. I'm not doing this on Twitter where I have to like, I'm not talking about like the Showa versus fictional vampires on Twitter right now. I'm just not going to do that. Um, And I think that, you know, the author Brandon Taylor calls it uh, reading as a prosecutor. And I think that that is part of the, the sort of, Ooh, I really like that phrasing. Yeah. It's like he identified that the dominant critical mode. Now he feels this was in his Substack, which Brandon Taylor, author of real life and filthy animals, he's a brilliant guy and a really great guy. I know him from my, my uh, day job work in, in the publishing business. He, uh, he, he said, like, you know, the dominant critical mode now is to read everything, every work of fiction, 
as a way to uncover secret things about the writer that you can then prosecute them for. It's like you're cross-examining the author because that's how, in the attention economy online, that's how criticism gets attention. And that's not to say that we shouldn't criticize an author if they do something that is insensitive or bad or whatever but there is a there's a desire to read in bad faith from the beginning because that's what draws eyes and i think that's what i find that's how i felt when this person said that about me because i was just like you would have to read me in the worst possible faith to think that me enjoying this supervillain is me supporting nazism like what you know what is that like why do you feel the need to to interact with other people anyway this is a this is a dour conversation uh, to some extent we should probably get back on the on the fun stuff we said well we're actually we're, we're nearly out of time or we're actually we should go to questions we're actually slightly over and we've got a couple listener questions that i i want to get yeah, to let's um, i run long you know this about me yeah and i figured this this episode will, will will run a little bit long so um let's see uh road virus blog blog asks us on tumblr um basically this is this is I'm not going to read the whole question because it's pretty long, um, but they collected X-Men from 1991 until late 90s, um, trying to get back in where is a good spot. You know, I don't like missing much. Should I just start after Onslaught, recommend a trade? Do not start after Onslaught. That no, would be a terrible no, decision. worst possible place to jump in. Um, so if you want to be really thorough and go into the modern era, and it's going to give you 22 years of back reading, and I'm sorry about this, I would start at the beginning of Grant Morrison's run. I was, yeah, there's two places, really. You start with Morrison, or you start with Hoxpox, House of X, yeah. Powers of Ten. Because I do think, I, I get letters from people, emails, letters, God, how old am I, 100? I get emails from people all the time who say, I started X-Men with Hoxpox, and your show has helped me figure it out. Because it, it is... Hickman and company do give it all to you. Um, the, the the story is enriched if you know the classic material, but you don't need to. So I think that that's a good on-ramp because if you're familiar with the characters from that 90s heyday of like the peak of the franchise's popularity, you'll know them well enough that you can follow what's going on. Um, but yeah, if you want to go back to like the other thing that everybody agrees is one of the pinnacles of the franchise, then you should read New X-Men by Grant Morrison, which changed the whole superhero genre forever. You know, I would actually do it anyway. Even if you're planning to primarily start with Hawkspot. Sure. I would, I mean, yeah. I would read New X-Men as a bridge series because it's a radical mm-hmm. reimagining that sits, I think, thematically and to an extent narratively at the midpoint between the older status quo and Krakoa. Absolutely. I see it as like almost Hegelian. Like you have Claremont as like a thesis and then New X-Men is sort of an antithesis. And then I think that this era is sort of a synthesis of Claremont's themes and Morrison's themes, but is also doing something very new. I mean, all of the homo novissima stuff and the, you know, evolutionary stuff and like you have new gods and all that, that's straight out of Morrison. But the character relationships and the tone is much more Claremont. I don't know. I think it's, I, I, I think, I think they've accomplished something astounding which is to take a franchise that had lain fallow for the most part for about 20 years and turn it into one of the biggest things on the market again which i never thought would happen so we've got uh one one person who's got a question for each of us for you if you had to focus a discussion on one story arc run which would it be inferno that's easy for me i could talk about that in my sleep mine is do you ever wish you could skip to talking about krakoa 
No, I don't. I'm looking forward to getting there eventually, but there is so much cool stuff in the meantime that I mm-hmm. would be so disappointed not to really be able to get my teeth into. Yeah, some other stuff in the middle between Morrison and, and Krakoa that I do think is great. Everything Mike Carey did is incredible. Cyspur's X-Men Legacy is great. Zabwell's New Mutants is great. Like, there's stuff in there that really is very, very strong. But it's just, um, you have to you have to look for it, you know? Uh, whereas I think now, I mean, you know, you don't have to love every book in the line. Part of what they're doing now is like there is a book for everyone, but I'm enjoying every book in the line. I'm buying X-Force and Solo Wolverine every month and I'm having a blast, which is not something I have ever done before in my life. So, uh, you know, I, I think that this is a, a golden age and it's a good time to get in. Um, I prefer talking about the classic stuff to talking about Krakoa, actually, when I'm doing my show, because... Well, first of all, I know a lot of the people writing the comics right now. So that yeah, that's, is that's an issue that I have as well. With awkward, right? It. Being able to really actually, like, we're starting to get into the point where people, people I know show up, but they're all inkers and letterers at this point. So I'm like, right. okay with that. Yeah. I'm like, I, you know, I can really take a whack at a storyline that's 35 years old in a way that I don't always want to, like, nail a story from five years ago to the wall. You know what I mean? Well, and if I am going to nail a a story from then to the wall, I want to have the kind of critical perspective that I'm able to bring to the older material. Absolutely. Which I think takes some time and some assessment. Yeah, I feel like a huge part of the value of what Miles and I do is is the synthesis, not just just the the going through projects. And while we've done, and, and I mean, even when we were doing reviews of books that were coming out, like those were always much, much shorter and much more sort of surface level than the stuff that we do with the older material. And there are a lot of reasons for that. But one of them is just that we can really come at the older stuff with a much, much broader historical perspective. And that historical mm-hmm. perspective is, is part of what we do. So jumping to Kakoa just wouldn't work for us. Yeah, like my favorite Krakoa era books, and I'm enjoying pretty much everything, but my favorites have been Hellions, Excalibur and Vita Ayala's New Mutants. And I love talking about all three of those books, but would I feel comfortable doing like a deep critical analysis of them when they've only existed for a year to two years or three years now almost? No, because it's all feelings, right? It's like, I think Hellions is like the best book ever written because I'm still on an emotional journey with it that just ended, you know? Whereas I can look back on a story that I read when I was a child with different eyes now. I can look at it from other perspectives. I can look at... 20, 30 years of critical scholarship that exists and place my arguments within a framework. Like I'm more interested in talking about the history and showing what I try to do with each episode is find the essential core of the character that makes them special and what could make them a great character now. But I do it by looking at their past. And I think that that is, is a more fruitful way to analyze this kind of ongoing material. Okay, I'm going to do one more question, and this question is by default for you because I have no idea what it means, which is, uh, <laughs> who is the Nene Leaks of Real Housewives of Krakoa? Oh, my goodness. I'm not, am I pronouncing that right? Nene, Nene Leaks. She, Nene is, you've seen her in GIFs. She was on Atlanta for many years. She hasn't been on in a while now, but she was a real breakout of the Housewives that's hard because, you know, honestly, like, Iska the Unbeaten is new, but every time she's on page, she's, like, dragging everyone in a way that makes me laugh. 
I feel like if she was gifable, there would be a lot of Iska the Unbeaten gifts already of just like her reading Xavier to Helen back. Um, so maybe, maybe her. Um, I, I mean, I think uh, it's it's easier for me to identify like, like Monet, like Emma is more of like a Heather Debro type. You know what I mean? Like there's certain archetypes where I can, Nini's so specific. She's like such a, She's such a unique figure in popular culture. It would be like picking the Teresa Judice of like Krakoa. Like these are very singular reality icons. And I'm going to move on now because Jay is looking at me like I'm speaking Martian. It, it, it's kind or of Araki, like, I, I, I feel guess. like I'm getting a, I'm getting a sense of what people who don't read comics hear when I talk about X-Men. Yeah. Well, I love the Real Housewives because, well, first of all, it's one of the only things on TV that like really follows the lives of women over 45, which I think is interesting. But also it's, I mean, it's high drama. It's exploitative in certain ways, like all reality television is at times. But I also think that it shows really, I mean, Real Houses of New York, the first like 10 to 12 seasons is like a Shakespearean tragedy that you watch like unfold before your eyes. And it's fascinating. And as someone who studies, like as a student of of character and of narrative, right? Like there's something very interesting about following someone's life. Like I have watched Real Houses of New Jersey since it debuted over 10 years ago. And I was on it last season because I represent two of the housewives. So I was, I had a very brief cameo for like three seconds. Cause I was like, I was like, you got a book deal. Um, but you know, the, those women, I, I have watched their children grow up. Like I have seen their marriages evolve or break up or, you know, like it, it's just a fascinating, it's weird because they're not fictional. Right. But then you also have to think about the layer of fictionalizing that happens because it's a story that is edited. Like it's not scripted, but there is an editorial team like what's the narrative this season? Like, let's show you the footage that fulfills that narrative. Right. So you start to think about, like, how are people narrativized? And then you're talking about celebrities generally. Anyway, let's move on. But I, I think it's fun. It's very Claremontian. It's high drama. So with, on that note, um, where can folks find you online uh, if they're interested in your podcast or following you on social media, et cetera? If by some miracle you want to hear more of my voice after this overlong episode, uh, I can be found on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find Cerebro at Cerebrocast on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can find a link to the merch store, the Discord server, all of the episodes at Cerebrocast.com, which is the official landing page. That's me getting kind of an overhaul soon, which I'm excited about. Right now, it's just like a weird corner of my personal website because I was like, I need a website. And I don't, you know, but uh, I'm trying to get something dedicated going. And um, yeah, just, you know, the, I'm I'm on Twitter too much, so I'm trying to be on it less, but I'm always open to to chat. And, uh, you know, if you have not listened to Cerebro before and you check it out, I hope you like it and I hope you survive the experience. All right. And we will link to that in the, again in the visual companion to this episode. Thank you again so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. You really... You and Miles really revolutionized this space. I don't think that there would be an eager audience for X-Men podcasts if you two had not done what you did and had not done it so successfully for so long. So I'm grateful because I, I think that I see my, you know, I'm not to make you feel like, I don't want to be like one of those people at the Emmys who's like saying to the host, like, I watched you in middle school. Like that's because that's horrible because and we're, not that that far apart. Older than you. we're not that far apart in age, but 
I, you've been doing this a lot longer than I have, and I think that you created the space, and I'm very grateful for that, especially like the queer X-Men fandom space, which is so specific and really lovely to, to find as an adult in a way that I hadn't before. Thank you so much. And with that, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon. Uh, this time, Forest Hills, New York. And where are you recording from today? Westchester, New York, about 20 minutes from Salem Center. I'm at my parents' house. <laughs> and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. And you can check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode accompanied by original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you want to help us stay on the air and independent and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And either way, please take a minute to rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next episode, Miles will be back as we check in with the teens of Generation X. Generation X.